Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the authors of Anthracite Labor Wars, Robert Walensky and William Hasty. Our guests for the next hour are Robert Walensky and William Hasty, and they are the authors of this book, Anthracite Labor Wars, Tenancy, Italians, and Organized Crime in the Northern Coalfield of Northeast Pennsylvania, 1897 to 1959. Uh, Robert Walensky, we'll start with you. Um, since your title includes 1897 and your book starts then, if you were to be on the site of an anthracite mining uh, m operation in 1897, what would you see? In 1897, it was a, um, a difficult time. There were major strikes in 1897, particularly at Latimer, which is a rather well-known strike. The Latimer Massacre was in 1897, and it was the largest labor massacre, unarmed mine workers shot by deputies of the 19th century. There's some major research going on right now on Latimer by some folks from the University of Maryland. Uh, the United Mine Workers of the World had just come into the field in the mid-1890s. They were trying to organize upwards of uh, 120,000 mine workers or so. Uh, and they were um, 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 being, res uh, the, the resistance came from the companies, of course, who did not want to see a unionized workforce. And so it was the prelude to the major strikes of 1900 under John uh, Mitchell and the strike of 1902 under John Mitchell. And that's really where our story begins in this book, although it really begins in 1959 at the other end, Brian. How so? Well, we, uh, my brother Ken and my daughter Nicole and I wrote two books on the Knox mine disaster. And I must say that my co-author on this book, Bill Hasty, worked for the Knox Coal Company and was a major resource in that research on the Knox mine disaster. And we wanted to know how a company could mine illegally under the Susquehanna River in 1959 and uh, cause the river to break in, kill 12 men and flood miles and miles of mines through illegal mining. This was a, a company that had organized crime affiliations. And we, in this book, Anthracite Labor Wars, essentially traced back to the late 19th century the subcontracting and leasing systems of the Erie Coal Companies owned by the Erie Railroad, the Pennsylvania Coal Company, and the Hillside Coal and Iron Company. Because the Knox Coal Company leased the Knox mine area from the Pennsylvania Coal Company. And so this book, Labor Wars, really begins with the Knox disaster book, a reverse history, if you will, and the origins of this leasing system and the involvement of organized crime and other people in garnering these leases. Well, William Hasty, you were working for the Knox Mine Company at the time of the Knox Mine disaster? Yes. 
<laughs> what was your job? Well, many things. I, uh, I, I was working the head of the slope, usually, but I would go in, in the mine, down the slope, and, and work, uh, work with a crew of men who were, who were cross-shifting the rock men who were driving, extending the slope. Uh, and they were extending the slope from the, uh, the Pitson vein into the Marcy vein. And as they encountered the, the Marcy vein, a little strip of coal would show at the bottom of their, at the foot of their uh, working face. And each, each shift that it grow more and more. And when it reached a certain point where it would be profitable to do so, the Knox formed a, uh, a crew of four men to cross shift the, the rock men. The rockmen would remove rock, and the the cross shifters would remove the coal. That way, they kept them separate, and they could send the coal to the breaker and be paid for it. And and each day, each shift, there was less rock and more more coal. Uh, and and on the fateful day, the the twenty second of January. 1959, that morning, the rockmen had completed their, their share, their, their, in fact, their contract. They had removed the last, last car of rock, and now it was all, all coal. Uh, and they had to make a decision of whether they would gather their tools and heavy equipment together and cross the river to the, to the schoolie shaft where they had another contract, a rock contract, or whether they would stay and finish out their shift loading coal. And they decided to stay and load the, load the coal, and that was a fateful decision. What were they doing that was illegal? Well, they, what they were doing was legal, but uh, there were chambers that were driven off the slope out under the river that... Uh, were driven where, where there wasn't sufficient rock cover over over the coal to hold up the river. Uh, Thirty-five feet of rock cover would, was was the uh, was considered the, the minimum, and there there was only two and a half feet at, nearby. There were bore test boreholes that had been driven fifty years before to to show what what was to be expected under the ground and and these test boreholes showed certain amounts of of rock cover and the, there was a, there was 35 feet difference no 75 feet between the these test boreholes and on one end there was 35 feet of rock cover and the other end only two and a half feet so they assumed that the that the the median median amount uh, would would be would hold in in where where they were uh, where they were working. Where were you on the day the that the river broke through? I was on the, the afternoon shift. And when did it break through? Eleven uh, thirty-seven in the morning. Eleven thirty-seven a.m. 
but the men that there were there when it broke through weren't taking the time to look at their watches. <laughs> they were scrambling out. Did you show up for work then and Yes, get and when involved? I came to work, I had no idea what had happened. What did it look like? What was going on? Oh, the Susquehanna River was, was very high and very angry, and it was full of ice flows, and uh, it was rushing into the, into the opening in the river where it had broken through. Was there anything you could do? Uh, well, when I got there and found out what happened, I, I took it on my own to climb the hill to the mouth of the river slope, and I went down the slope as far as I could, but uh, at a certain point, the, uh, it was like a Niagara Falls, very angry. It, it had, it had backwashed up the slope at least 150 feet from where it was, where it had broke through, but it was coming, as, as the hours went by, the, this inrushing water was eroding the sidewalls of the of the of this opening, and so more and more water was was coming in at a time, and it was really violent, and it was coming through with such force that it could backwash up the slope, up say 150 feet. Well, uh, I was getting wet, and I know it was very, getting colder outside, and I knew I'd be working outside, so I I went outside then. And a foreman put me to work, uh, assigned me to patrol the, the railroad tracks and halt all traffic, both rail and, and human, uh, because there was danger that, uh, that it would collapse. This, the, the, the water was rushing in against the bank and threatened to undermine the, the railroad tracks. And I was to halt all traffic one way or another. No, Bob Olenski, how does that tie in going backwards to the to organized crime in the mines and the unions and the yeah. well, the key, unions? The key concept, Brian, here is leaseholding because the Knox Coal Company was a leaseholder from the Pennsylvania Coal Company for this particular tract of land. What does that mean? Well, you know, there's, there's surface rights to a piece of property and there's subsurface rights or mineral rights. And the Pennsylvania Coal Company uh, owned the mineral rights to this area in Port Griffith, Pennsylvania, at, at their Hewen Colliery, E-W-E-N, the Hewen Colliery, one of their bigger operations. Actually, the biggest. The biggest operation, yeah, uh, in terms of tonnage and output. And um, they decided at some point in the 1940s, early 40s, to um, not mine their own coal at this particular spot, but to lease, to sublet the mineral rights to the Knox Coal Company. Now, why would they do this? Well, the reasons were in part very economically rational. The Knox Coal Company was a tough coal company. It was a small coal company. It was incorporated. The leaseholders had to be incorporated. But it had organized crime affiliations and it didn't tolerate a lot from workers who wanted to do things like go on strike as we found for research in anthracite labor wars, the Erie Railroad companies, Pennsylvania and Hillside, had the most strike-prone labor force in the industry dating from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And they had remained the most strike-prone through the 1930s. 
and the company uh, wanted more output, and the men resisted more output. They, uh, the company wanted more control, the men resisted, more con resisted greater control. And um, finally, even before leasing, the Erie Coal Companies began subcontracting individual veins and chambers to entrepreneurial miners who were not incorporated. The subcontracting system really grew into the leasing system where, an, where a corporation, a small company, would get several chambers and eventually entire collieries. So quite early in, in the 20th century, the Erie, the Erie Coal Companies decided that we don't want to mine our own coal. We want to lease that out. But these leaseholders and subcontractors at first had to give the coal you know, back to Erie. And Erie would process it and ship it. It just didn't want to mine it because it didn't want to deal with all the problems with labor, which involved unions, which involved the safety. Safety and all these issues are now responsibilities of our subcontractors at first. And then in the 1930s, these leaseholders. So it's, it's the reorganization of access to mineral rights that's really behind this. How did the leaseholders or the subcontractors get away with not following the, the safety rules? Well, we had what amounted to a culture of corruption. We had one mine worker tell us that they were taking coal in an illegal area beyond the bounds of their lease. This would have been in the 19, as late as the 1950s, early 50s. And the inspectors would always announce state and federal when they were coming. There were two levels of inspectors. And so uh, when um, they heard the inspector was coming, this particular mine worker was told by the foreman to blow up that section of the mine. And the mine worker said, well, should we, should we pull out the equipment that's in that section of the mine, shaker chutes, you know, tools, whatever might be in there. And, and the foreman said, no, leave it in there and blow it. It'll look more authentic. The same mine worker, and we quote him in the book, he's quoted in Anthracite Labor Wars, tells us that he was given $100 or so um, on more than one occasion to take the inspector out to dinner and wine and dine him. And he, he said, well, it was a payoff for him. He wasn't going to be too tough on us. Now, not all inspectors were corrupt. We want to emphasize that. But there were a number of them. In many cases, the companies mined in areas where the inspectors didn't, couldn't see. They, did, they were kind of hidden by, by various kinds of blockages. They were behind a, a wall of cinder block or something, uh, or more likely burlap. And the inspector would come, and he'd want to know where you were mining. Show me the mining maps. Well, that these wouldn't be on the mining maps, these off-course chambers. Okay. So, and even when the inspectors found off-course mining, uh, the company would promise to not do it. This happened at Knox, but yet they took more coal out after the inspector left, and they took coal out at Knox in 1959, exactly where it broke through on the final day. They got 13 cars out of coal. And so the companies played fast and loose, especially the leaseholders. They were coal hungry. They didn't worry about things. Uh, Governor uh, Earl did, a, did, a, did an investigation of, uh, after a, a, he appointed a commission to investigate things up that way after a, a mine disaster. And the report, which we quote in the book, states, most of these small mining companies are not abiding by the mining laws. Now you you were, used the phrase organized crime in referring to them. What made them organized crime as opposed to just corner cutters? Well, early in the 20th century, 
a group of um, Sicilian mine workers who had been sulfur mine workers came from Sicily to northeastern Pennsylvania. And the research on that, which we didn't do, it's been done a long time ago, they established the second oldest crime family in the United States after one in New York. They were called the men from Montedoro. Montedoro is in the sulfur belt of Sicily. It's near Agrigento. And there are towns like San Cataldo, Montedoro, um, Cinchana, where my mother's relatives are from. And uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was a sulfur miner in Sicily and became a coal miner in Sawyerville, Pennsylvania, where, where I was born. And uh, uh, there were many, many sulfur miners who came out of Sicily to northeastern Pennsylvania. And for reasons that we don't quite understand, the vast majority were hired by the Erie Coal Companies, especially the Pennsylvania Coal Company. Again, there were two Erie Coal Companies, the Pennsylvania and the Hillside Coal and Iron Company. 12,000 employees between those two companies, 10,000 for Erie, for, um, for PACC, Pennsylvania Coal Company, and 2,000 for the Hillside. And uh, of their workforce of 12,000 miners, about 36% or so, over a third were in Sicily. And they had been sulfur miners, the great majority, or laborers. And they're in the Pittston, Old Ford, Scranton area of northeastern Pennsylvania. Not so much down in Wilkes-Barre and Kingston and that Nanticoke area, but more in the middle toward the upper part of the so-called northern field. Okay? There are four anthracite fields, the northern, eastern, middle, western, middle, and southern. In Pottsville, southern. Well, um, these um, organized crime members um, allegedly led, according to the research, by a gentleman named Santo Volpi and his brother-in-law, Steve Latour. And this is well documented by the Pennsylvania Crime Commission. It's in federal testimony and so forth. Many historians have done this. This was not our contribution. They established a quite difficult regime because they began in 1913, Volpi and one of his lieutenants, Charles Consegra, they received the first subcontract from the Erie Coal Companies, issued by then the person in charge of the subcontracting, a gentleman named William Jennings, a coal company officer. He had offered these, these, these subcontracts to gentlemen with British uh, surnames, like Richards, and they refused them because they knew the men did not like this subcontracting type system. It had been around the 1890s at Erie Coal Companies. And uh, the strike of 1900 and 02 kind of did away with it, but it began to creep back in because the subcontractors who would just get a vein or two, uh, unincorporated, they would hire their men and essentially be non-union and pay them whatever they wanted. Many of them were immigrants dying for a job and push them and get more coal. Well, Volpe and Consegra start the subcontracting system in 1913 and it continues to expand after that. So the, the coal miners worked for the subcontractor? They didn't work for That's the... That's right. They, what was their relationship with the union then? Well, by 1902, the field was supposedly organized by the United Mine Workers of America under John Mitchell. Uh, but um, it varied from company to company. And at the Pennsylvania Coal Company and the Hillside Company, they didn't think that Mitchell was progressive enough. They thought he was too conservative. They wanted, they wanted more strikes. They wanted higher wages. They wanted more benefits. And they wanted these, you know, the better working conditions. And so the minute the Erie Coal Companies began dropping out of the UMWA and going on their own. 
until the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, entered the enters the field in 1907. A very radical, very radical union, the IWW, the Wobblies. They come into the coal fields of northeastern PA, and they're most received, most welcomed at the Erie Coal Companies, especially among the Sicilian immigrants. But I want to emphasize something. The Sicilian immigrants who were sulfur miners came here as very progressive, organized mine workers from Sicily. Sicily had a very large, a huge socialist movement in the 1880s and 1890s because of the extreme exploitation and very dire conditions in Sicily. The farm workers, certain skilled craftsmen, and, and, and the sulfur miners were all very adamant socialist and unionist, a series of strikes but which they usually lost because of the states coming in on them, the governments coming in on them. And in Sicily, many of the sulfur mines had been leased to organize criminals. So when thousands of those sulfur miners came to northeastern PA, again, uh, if, if a third of, of the workforce is, is, uh, are, are, are Italians, this is, this is 4,000 miners at the Erie Coal Companies were from Sicily or Italy, mainly from Sicily. They came here on their mark for labor organizing, a fact that's not well appreciated among labor historians. That's, I think, one of our contributions. They, they were met because they're only one-third of the workforce. Two-thirds of the workforce are Poles and Lithuanians and Slovaks and the Slavs, but also the, the very active Welsh and Scottish and English mine workers who had been trying to form labor unions throughout the second half of the, of the, of the 1800s. So we get a confluence of two very activist workforces and they fed off each other and with a brutal company like the Erie who had the highest profit margins and paid the lowest wages according to the 1902 Strike Commission report, it was a perfect storm for a labor blow up. Uh, William Hasty, when you were a coal miner, what were relations like between the miners and the union and the mining company? Well, at, at the Knox, two of the committeemen were, were bought off, really, by the company. And, and those two committeemen were members of the Pitson Mafia. Uh, the organization that Sano Volpe and Consegra and and uh, Stefano Latour organized was a mafia, was the Pitson Mafia com uh, Society, a, a deadly organization. Uh, and in time, the Pennsylvania Coal Company came to, to award its leases only to the Pitson Mafia family. And the, the key man was Sandro Volpe, who was very much feared even within the Mafia. He was called King of the Night with everything sinister that that suggests. And he, he was, a, he was a, a little skinny guy, but he, he was, uh, he was ex, uh, extremely cruel. And uh, that's, that's why even within the Mafia, they, people were afraid of him. Now, let's get back to the Knox Coal Company. The Knox Coal Company was formed in 1943 with uh, Lu Louis Fabrizio as a main stockholder and as the president. 
and it, with John Chandra as the minority stockholder. Louis Fabrizio was Napolitan. He was he he was not a not a mafioso, uh, and whereas uh, John Chandra was, he was he was a strong man in the Pitson Mafia family, and also the the Pitson Mafia family was, had very close ties to Buffalo family too. So there was a lot of interaction there, but. The, the Knox was formed with the expectation of getting a lease on the Schooley Colliery in Exeter. And this was an unreasonable ex, uh, expectation. Carlos Aparito and, and Stephen Latour already had solid, valid leases on, on the, on the Schooley Colliery. And they were both, both mafioso. But, uh, but it was wartime, and the de demand for coal was very high, and the colliery was working full-time and overtime, which is, is, is gold for, for uh, mine owners. Saparito and Latour knew Volpe's reputation as a cruel, cruel man, and they, then they gave, up, they gave up their leases with no... no uh, did anyone in the union ever run against these guys to try to get a reform group in the union, to try to get rid of the, the organized criminals? Yes, at times, but then, then there was a certain amount of fear, too. But I have to say this, our two committeemen uh, had their hands tied because of, of August Lippi, who was president of, of the whole district, and he he was involved in Knox Coal Company. He had 10,000 shares of hypothecated stock in the Knox Coal Company, which had been given to him. And so he, he tied the hands of, of the two committeemen, although they, they presented grievances for, for some of the men. In fact, uh, uh, Wiener Argo presented a grievance for, for Ned, Ned Manley against me. I'd been kept on the job at, when there was a shutdown. I'd been kept on the job uh, ahead of Manley, who, who had seniority over me. So our committee weren't, weren't as bad as, they, as was thought. We talked about how the uh, organized criminals got into the unions now, you talked about, and into the subcontractors. Did they, did they control the industry at all levels? Well. When the IWW came in in 1907, it led to a major strike in 1916. And the record's very clear on this. There's a wonderful thesis written on this by Patrick Lynch from, the, from Bloomsburg University on the IWW in the coal region of northeastern PA. And uh, the, um, the rebels, who began calling themselves insurgents from the Italian glee insurgente, they weren't radicals. They didn't want to call themselves anarchists. They were insurgents. Um, the major strike was over the subcontracting system. This was very clear, which began to expand at the Erie Coal Companies. The um, IWW lost that strike, and the company then expanded the subcontracting system further until 1920, when the Erie Coal Company men redoubled their efforts through the UMWA, the United Mine Workers of America, and they threw out of office the mob subcontractors who had been the president, vice president, secretary, and treasurer of the locals. 
See the, the, so they were the, they they had infiltrated. They were the mine by operators and the union. By 1920, bosses. they were subcontractors and office holders in the union, and the men rebelled against that, led by two mine workers, one named Alec Campbell, Camel, and the other named Ronaldo Capellini, who was a one-armed Italian immigrant from northern Italy who lost his arm in a mining accident at the Pennsylvania Coal Company. Tell me about Ronaldo Capellini, because he's on your front cover, and he, he, he appears many times in this book. Well, he and Campo were a dynamic duo in 1920. They brought 10,000 men for the first time, really since the O2 strike, 12,000 men, I mean, full-time, uh, brought them into the UMWA. They had taken over most of the locals in the company, forced out these mobsters, and Capellini was a great orator. And since a third of the workforce were Italian, uh, or you know, immigrants from Sicily or elsewhere, he was able to speak to them in their native tongue, being an immigrant from Northern Italy himself as a young lad. And he was vital to this, but uh, he was so successful that in 1923, he runs for the presidency of the entire District 1 of the UMWA, Luzerne and Lackawanna County, basically. Uh, 60,000 mine workers, and he wins the election. And one of his top priorities as president is to do away with the subcontracting system, which had begun to spread to other co uh, companies. Lehigh Valley's interested, and so is the Hudson Coal Company interested in, because they see the cost advantages. The subcontractors can squeeze the men. The men would walk around underground like this around this time, saying, two cars a man, two cars a man. We're not going to produce more than two cars a man. The company wanted three cars a man or four cars a man but we're not going to have a speed-up, right? Well, um, the companies wanted a speed-up, and Capellini was elected in part to get rid of the subcontractors who were, in effect, giving you a speed-up because their men would produce three cars of coal or four cars of coal. He remains president of the district until 1928 when he's forced out by a series of bewildering strikes, mainly at the Pennsylvania Coal Company in 1924 and 1928. Those are in the book. Each of those strikes, 1916, 1920, 24, and 28 are different chapters in the book. He's forced out, and um, you might think the rebellion's over, but it's just getting bad in 1928. I want to read a paragraph from here. You say in 1928, there was a, a demands for a special convention. The Save the Union Committee, uh, and one of the people in it was George Papkun, uh, envisioned the gathering as a chance to deposit the, to to depose the Capellini gang. He told supporters, "We call upon all mine workers to clean out the Capellini and support the special district convention, in spite of the terrorizing tactics of the police who are trying to keep Capellini and Lewis in power." So, did Capellini start off as an insurgent and became establishment? He did. He started off as an insurgent. John Lewis wasn't sure he could work with him when he was elected in 1923, but he was assured by, by Capellini that he he would. He would try to be a moderate. And Lewis said, well, listen, this guy's an Erie Coal Company employee. Maybe he can stop all these constant wildcat strikes, unauthorized strikes at the Erie Coal Companies. And he did for a while, but the longer he was there, the more Capellini began to agree with Lewis that the agitation, all these constant wildcat strikes was being caused by communists who were, in fact, trying to organize the northern field. And the two folks you cite, Pepkin, and uh, Donizeski, they were communists. So you're mm -hmm. quoting from the, from the daily worker there. Um, but the mine workers were not that interested in the communists um, at all. They preferred to call themselves socialists. They were worried about the, the affiliation that being 
tied to the communists might be, and, and repeated attempts by the communists to become part of this insurgent movement were rebuffed by the insurgents. They didn't like Lewis at this point. He was not doing enough for them. He was a bituminous man, and he was from the bituminous fields. They were not too happy with Capolini, who had become a Lewis man, but yet they rejected the communists. They're going to fight the battle on them by themselves, these 12,000 men. And in 1928, we have the war, the, the, the uh, feud, rather, at the number six colliery, where a number of men were murdered by organized crime hitmen, and were, in one case, the president of the local at the number six colliery, which is on the cover of the book, number six in the background, um, killed a union official at the District 1 headquarters in downtown Wilkes-Barre in the Miners National Bank building. Frank Agati was the victim in that case. And why did they kill him? What were, were they trying to keep? Uh, they, the, this, the strike at number six went on. All the collieries had strikes, but number six colliery was particularly difficult. That's where Alec Campbell worked, and that's where Ronaldo Capellini worked at number six in, the, in Jenkins Township, Luzerne County. And they went down the newly elected union officers who were insurgents, who had just deposed subcontractors who had some organized crime affiliation. They went down to the district headquarters. Ronaldo Capellini was gone that day, or else he might have been there. And they tried to negotiate whereupon the newly elected president of this local, 1703 at the number six, uh, pulled out a gun and um, the union organizer named Frank Agati, who, who, was, who had alleged organized crime affiliations as well, he, had, he always carried two guns and the bullets started flying. But only Agati was hit and he died. Um, and uh, the three men who were there, Bonita and two other union officers, who came down to negotiate an end to this long strike and it just got out of hand, they fled. And one was caught and two surrendered and they both went to jail for voluntary manslaughter. Um, and, um, but that very month, as Bill knows and can tell you better than I, there were a number of murders uh, in Pittston and at the number six colliery, including Alec Campbell. I'd like to clarify something. I said the, the Pennsylvania Coal Company was awarding leases strictly to Pittson, members of the Pittston Mafia. When, when the Coal Company, uh, when, when the Pennsylvania gave the lease to, to uh, the Knox Coal Company, the lease was in the name of John Chandra, the minority stockholder, and not in the name of Louis Fabrizio, the, the president and majority, because Fabrizio was from Naples and, and not a mafioso. And then when, when the uh, Pennsylvania Coal Company started giving the Knox Coal Company leases on, on the uh, uh, Ewan Colliery, which was right across the river from the schoolie, the lease, uh, John Chandra had died but uh, the, the leases were all in the name of Mrs. Josephine Chandra rather than in the president of the company's name, uh, Louis Fabrizio. So the, 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 there was more and more evidence that the, the Pennsylvania Coal Company were awarding leases only to members of the Pittston Mafia. Uh, did you miners talk among yourselves that the union wasn't looking out for you and that you were kind of on your own there? Uh, I was kind of an outsider, I, and 
No, I, I didn't hear any. We were working too damn hard to be talking, really, <laughs> discussing anything. Uh, and, and also, jobs were scarce. And the, the men, men do enough to keep quiet. You talked, uh, Bob, you talked about the, um, all the strikes that were going on all the time from 1902 on. There was a 164-day strike in 1902. Was that part of the coal company's business model that they just built in that there would be a certain number of strikes? I mean, why couldn't they reach an accommodation where people would just work and the company would make money? The answer side operators, keep in mind that by 1901 or two, one, uh, the Anthracite railroads, the five major railroads, Lehigh Valley, Reading, Erie, and so forth, they were owned by J.P. Morgan interests, and they also owned most of the coal. They owned the major coal companies, um, like the Pennsylvania Coal Company or the Lehigh Valley Coal Company. And it was a, a quite a monopolistic situation. There were still independents, but, but the majority of the coal was, con, was owned and controlled by the major railroads, who were in turn controlled by J.P. Morgan interests. And they were just, just intractable against any organized labor. The bituminous operators had an agreement with the UMW long before the, the anthracite operators did. Even when the union supposedly won the 1902 strike, the operators didn't really recognize it as legitimate. They agreed to bargain with the UMWA and John Mitchell over wages and benefits and other, well, not, no, really no benefits, but work, work conditions and other kinds of things, um, uh, prices for, for different jobs. They didn't recognize this legitimacy for a long time, and they would never allow the, um, the deduction of union dues from the workers' pay, the so-called checkoff, for decades. So the anthracite operators were really tough, much tougher than the bituminous operators in resisting unionization. So the men thought the only recourse they have to get a fair share of the billions being made was to strike for it. So the, the coal companies figured they could have absorbed so many days of striking a year and still make money? Well, they had a couple strategies. Remember that, that the British and German uh, mine workers of the 18... 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, and I, I include the Irish and the British then, too, who came in, in big numbers in the 1840s and 50s. They were very activist unionists, as I had mentioned earlier. And there was a series of strikes, then a major strike in 1869, right around the time of the Avondale mine disaster, 1887 and 88. There were many, many strikes. And the operators went to Eastern and Southern Europe purposely with agents to bring over Italians and, and Slovaks and Poles and Ukrainians who they thought didn't know anything about unions and who would be very docile and they would dilute these rabid unionists from, from who, you, who we have here, but it didn't work. There's lots of research on the fact that it didn't work. These newcomers learned about the unfairness and the dangers and the exploitation and they quickly joined with their British colleagues who were then you know, miners and super, uh, wouldn't be superintendents, but they had the skilled positions. These guys were mainly laborers. And they were active unionists by the 1880s. Did the different ethnic groups get along? Not in all cases, but one of the m finest examples of ethnic solidarity in American history. 26 ethnic groups in northeastern Pennsylvania, and uh, they backed John Mitchell. The union became part of the ethnic culture. 
Mitchell looked something like a Catholic priest, you know, he had a white collar on, and it, it probably by no accident, you'd go into a, to a, to a pole, uh, to, to a house by immigrants from Poland, and you'd see, you know, Jesus and the Blessed Mother, and you'd see John Mitchell right next to them. He became a real hero to these folks. So, no, there was ethnic prejudice and there was tension, but they did cooperate, and at the Erie Coal Companies, the Italians were the largest group, but they weren't the majority, yet they had constant strikes when they would shut down the, the entire operation of 12 men. So the Welsh and, and, the, and the French, and there were a lot of different miners up there, would, would join in. Were there fewer strikes when the Union and the coal companies were more in bed together? Um, eventually. The coal wars, the labor wars, in, it peaked in 1928 with, with several murders at the, in, in Pittston at the number six collieries, including Alec Campbell, as I say, and Frank Agati, who I mentioned earlier. After this, in, in Capolini's resignation as president, the war spreads beyond the Erie Coal Company. So far, it's been pretty confined to the Hillside Coal and Iron Company and the Pennsylvania Coal Company and these 12,000 men. But it begins to expand to the other men in the field who number 50,000. And there's a huge labor war in 1930, in 31, in 32, in 33, and 34. The field doesn't work for a week without somebody be on, being on strike. And the men form another union in 1933 called the United Anthracite Miners of Pennsylvania, the UAMP, just for anthracite mine workers. Um, its leader is Thomas Maloney. Is that because they thought that the UMWA was they gave up on the UMWA? At least half the workers in the northern field backed the UAMP, but half backed John L. Lewis then, who's president by 1920 of the UMWA. The fields, the northern fields, split down the middle. In the southern and middle fields, they stay with the UMWA. They don't tinker much with this new UAMP, but. That's the biggest field up north. It's got 60-some thousand. They have a total of 60-some thousand down below, more or less. I'm using round numbers now. So um, the, this labor war of the UAMP, which leads to murder and mayhem, especially at the Glen Alden Coal Company, which was the biggest coal company, but also at the Erie Coal Companies, leads to the, to the murders of Good Friday, uh, April 10th, 1936, when Thomas Maloney, the leader of this, president of this rebel union, opens a cigar box bomb it explodes and it kills him and his young son who's standing next to him, four years old. Other package bombs were sent by an alleged disgruntled member of the UAMP who thought that Maloney was beginning to soften. But Senator Robert Wagner is brought up there to try to negotiate this, author of the famous Wagner Act, maybe the most important labor law in US history. He produces unsatisfactory results. No, it's, it's, it's anarchy in the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton area between 1930 and 1935. It had been anarchy at the Erie Coal Companies in Pittston, Old Forge, and Scranton, but now it goes from Shikshini on the south to Forest City on the north, Forest City where the Erie Coal Companies had a colliery, by the way. And it lasts for five bitter years of the 1950 with the Maloney assassination uh, and the New Deal being against all these strikes, Washington under Franklin Roosevelt, the courts, who were in the back pockets of the coal companies in many instances, the police, the UMWA, and, and John L. Lewis is very powerful in the first Roosevelt administration. He's a member of the National Labor, National Labor Board, which is supposed to negotiate strikes. 
this whole insurgent movement finally collapses in 1936, 35, 36, and then leasing shoots to the moon. All the major companies began leasing. And keep in mind that Knox gets its lease in the early 40s for this ha very hazardous site. But it's leasing from one end to the next. The men feel like they have no recourse. It's the Great Depression, the 1930s, so they're shutting down mines because the demand is slacking. So it becomes a, a, a real battleground, which I, I think that one, of our, one thing our book, I think, is going to point out, which is how difficult it was then. Many mine workers wouldn't go to work without carrying a pistol around this time because you either for the UMWA or for the UAMP split right down the middle. And this was all taking place during a time of the decline of the anthracite industry, which you said started around 1920? The decline really started around 1925-26 with the huge industry-wide 1925-26 strike. Lewis called it. Uh, the, he was, Lewis was becoming more and more conservative, but he had his limits because the owners wanted big givebacks and he didn't want any givebacks. So he got no wage advances with the longest strike ever 1925-26, six-month-long strike. But anthracite lost many markets, especially in the East. People were saying, you guys are always on strike somewhere. It's unreliable. So they start switching to other sources. So by the time the Great Depression hit in 1926, anthracite was already in recession. It only got worse. So you have the juxtaposition of the Great Depression with the labor wars of the 30s. How did you two get together to work on this project in the first place? Well, when I was researching the Knox mine disaster, I interviewed 50-some miners and family members who had lost uh, miners in the, in the disaster. Um, a, a professor, Phil Tuohy, from Wilkes University, who's a friend of mine in the political science department, uh, said that you've got to interview Mr. William Hasty. I just heard him speak at the Kiwanis Club of Wilkes-Barre. He, he knows all about the Knox mine disaster. So I called Bill, he was then an employee of the Luzerne County Historical Society, and I interviewed him and he had a tremendous presentation and I visited him many, 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 many times over the next <laughs> two decades. And um, this book is really a collaboration between us over two decades of, of collaboration and writing and corresponding and phone calls. And, and he lived the story and I'm the academician that really has studied the story. I'd like to explain why the miners didn't want to load more than two cars of coal a shift. There were three, at least three reasons. One thing, the market for coal was not illimitable. And usually, and, and, and of course, it, anthracite became a residential uh, coal. Uh, if, if they work, if they work, loaded more than two cars of coal a shift, the the sooner they'd be out of work, idle when the mines would go idle. Uh, every every spring, they most of the mines would shut down because people weren't weren't burning the using their furnaces. Also, the more coal they loaded, the more dust got in their lungs, and the sooner they were going to be smitten with miner's asthma, which became known as black damp. Well, th there were some reasons why, other reasons why they, they wanted to do two, two cars of coal, along with what Bill said. Um, um, one was the work culture. 
they thought that you know, seven, eight hours in the mine was enough because they had other lives to live. They were involved in choirs. They were involved in church activities. They had gardens. They had big families. They didn't want to spend the entire day in the mine. The other one was that they, that they, were, um, they were not necessarily greedy. They, they were satisfied with the wage they could get and they weren't interested in bonus pay systems, which some companies instituted. Now, some miners were. So the work culture, the ethnic culture, was more familial than it was this productivity ethic that the coal companies had. A gentleman by the name of Frederick Winslow Taylor plays a role in your book. Can you explain yeah. what he did, how he was influential? Well, Taylor was the engineer, the industrial engineer, who reorganized American business. And his ideas eventually lead, after many decades, to the assembly line. I mean, that's the logical con conclusion to Taylor's time and motion studies, seeing how workers move and limiting their motion, and what time he had to stopwatch the, you know, the, the uh, efficiency expert. And uh, he greatly improved the efficiency of business. Of course, he greatly improved also the, uh, the uh, alienation of the workforce, because you, all you did all day long was one movement. All right, Henry Ford with the assembly line is the epitome of this, but other, many other industries, Westinghouse and many other industries called in, called in Mr. Taylor. Mining wasn't like that. I mean, there was no assembly line possible in mining. But what you could do, because you, your miners are off in their own corners of this vast mine. The superintendent and the bosses can't be around every minute because you have thousands of miners in there and you only have a handful of, you know, of, of, of bosses, a relative handful of bosses. So the miner had his independence, you see. They valued their independence. Each chamber was almost like a workshop, as one historian has written. Uh, however, um, there was new technology coming in. There were new kinds of loaders. There were new kinds of cutters. And the company had to bring those in. But anthracite had difficult veins. And so you couldn't bring in a lot of the technology you brought into bituminous, such as long wall mining and short wall mining. So more inefficiency in anthracite because of the way the veins went. Some of the veins were up into the mountain. You mined up into the mountain in certain cases. The mammoth vein. The mammoth, the, the biggest vein up there in the middle fields is the coal's up, not down. Uh, people don't It's kind of hard to imagine how you mine up, but they had little, little dams up there called batteries where you would blast the coal into the batteries and then release the coal down into the mine cars. So... Um, yeah, it, 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 was a, it was a much more difficult situation in anthracite. And uh, I think for that reason, it was not, it was not at all like bituminous and, and, and was a whole different ballgame. Uh, did this whole situation finally settle down? Did they reach some accommodation with the union or did the industry, did it happen just when the industry went away? After Maloney's death, the companies had won. Maloney was who? Uh, Tom Maloney was the president of the rebel union that formed in 1933 called the, UMW, uh, called the UAMP, who opens the cigar box and, mm -hmm. and is killed with his son. And uh, that's the end of the, of the big labor war. And then it, leasing expands. Organized crime, as Bill said, gets huge numbers of leases, especially from the Pennsylvania Coal Company. Other companies lease to whomever, not necessarily organized crime. They were heavily in the... Lehigh Valley had a lot of leases to, to organize crime affiliates. But uh, at most, most of the leases across the industry were not organized criminals. They, 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 they were a, a, a huge number of them at the Erie Coal Companies, but, but Glenn Alden would lease to a lot of different people, and, and Hudson Coal Company, they would lease a lot of different people. We have only looked at the detailed leases of the Erie Coal Companies. We have to mention that. 
So no, the industry begins to peter out in the 1950 and we have these scavenger leaseholders who are taking any and all coal they can get and uh, it leads to the Knox Mine disaster, which is kind of a, a tragic, but in many ways predictable outcome. Uh, Mr. Hasty, did, did you continue to work in the mines after the Knox Mine disaster? Uh, well, there were no jobs from Wilkes-Barre on up because all the mines, the deep mines were closed. The work was uh, in, in the lower end of the county, uh, Glen Lyon, and, and so uh, where the mines were also very, very deep. Uh, and Wanamie and Glen Lyon were too far away for me to, <laughs> to travel. Uh, and, and eventually even those mines went out of business, went out. Now, the Ferretti's who had subleased from the Knox at, at the schoolie, uh, they opened up a, a small mine and hired some of their old, old workers, but at a dollar a day. And these men were on, on unemployment compensation. So the state was, was making up the difference in, in the pay there. Uh, these people were not good to work for. <laughs> was there a time when the United Mine Workers were cleaned up and, and uh, became more representative of the workers instead of the bosses? Well, um, I, we, we, they took on the bosses. We want to emphasize major strikes in 1900, 1902, 1906, 1912. Um, you know, the 22 was a big strike. There were many strikes. For many of the mine workers, John L. Lewis was a great man, I'd say for most of them. But he wouldn't go far enough for a lot of them. Well, he was a, he was a Republican, and he b believed business should have its own way. He believed in, in leasing. certain matters. He believed in leasing. Yes. He believed that, this, that what the company wants to do, they should make those decisions. It's their property. He was a great respecter of property rights. And the courts did rule that the companies have a legal right to subcontract their mines. However, strike commissions appointed by presidents like Wilson uh, and Harding, they ruled that, well, let's limit subcontracting to special tasks and leasing, like doing development work to open up new parts of the mine. Not to mine coal, because it, the men don't like it. It's a speed up. Uh, it, the, the, the employees of the subcontractors are often cheated or beaten up, and many of the deaths occurred because of fighting between subcontractors, especially in organized crime, and their employees who didn't like this injustice. Is subcontracting still going on today? It's going on all over the place. Oh, it is. I mean, uh, sure. I mean, sneakers, computers, you name it, are made under subcontract uh, in other industries. Is it going on on anthracite? No, because there is no deep mining of anthracite to speak mm -hmm. of. There are a handful of mines operating in the middle fields. No, not in, not in any coal industry that I know of, but in manufacturing of garments and you know what. The major computer companies don't make their own computers. They have subcontractors and, 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 and uh, you know, other putter-outers called the putting-out system in, in early industrial history. Putting-out goes way back. But the we term are, came from Britain, did it, it came not? from Britain. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Robert Wolensky and William Hasty. They are the authors of this book, Anthracite Labor Wars. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian.
You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.